Well, a very warm welcome to our latest generation podcast and uh, please excuse us for the quality of sound today. Again, we're under lockdown, so we're not talking in the studio conditions that we normally have, but we're all getting used to this. We're all getting used to kind of living with a little less than what's best. But certainly our guest today is not in that less best category. He is an old friend of mine. I have known him since he was 17 years of age when he was a member in my congregation up in Smithton and Inverness. He is uh, the Reverend Dr. Alistair Wilson. Alistair, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, David. It's great to be with you. And uh, yes, we've known each other for a long time, so it's great to have the chance to chat. Super. Now, some of the folks, some of our listeners will know who you are. Others will not perhaps know you so much. Can you just give us a, a little flavour of who you are in terms of where you were raised and what sort of upbringing you had? Sure. I am a Highlander, born in Inverness and uh, raised in the surrounding area. I grew up in uh, small rural communities for most of my childhood. Uh, just late teens, we moved uh, to Culloden, and uh, that's where I consider my home base now. Uh, so, yeah, it was uh, uh, a good a good experience to grow up in the Highlands, uh, a good place to be. Uh, I'm married to Jenny. Sorry. Uh, okay. I'm married to Jenny, and uh, we have three adult children now, and uh, we have uh, two grandsons, and so I'm reminded of my growing age. Yeah, you're old and you're like Gandalf. You're very, very old and very, very wise. Well, hair. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, Jenny, of course, is from a well-known missionary family. Her parents, uh, the Spraggots, and, uh, you know, Jenny's moved about. She's a typical mish kid. You, however were raised, as you say, you know, within a very limited geographical area. Do you, do you think a sense of place is important in our lives? I think so. I'm thankful for having grown up in the Highlands. Uh, it's a beautiful part of the world, and uh, I think I appreciate it more as I get older. But uh, I guess as I was a young person, sometimes I was frustrated by it. Sometimes we felt a long way from um, from where the action was. And uh, it was, I guess, a 40-minute a drive to the big city of Inverness for us when we, uh, we stayed out in the countryside. So, uh, yeah, it, uh, it changes. Uh, your perspective changes as time goes on. But, uh, yeah, I'm thankful uh, for that uh, upbringing and belonging to, to Scotland. But we've also had that experience of living in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. And I think as a Christian, what matters most is our location in Jesus Christ, so to speak, our uh, our identity in him. And if he calls us to be somewhere, then I think that we can feel very much part of that place, uh, even when we uh, are in a different part of the world from what we're used to. So, yeah, I, I guess Jenny, to some extent, uh, has that diverse experience, born in Vietnam, but grew up to a large extent in uh, Glasgow and then uh, became a kind of adopted Highlander. So I think, to some extent, it was quite a big thing for her when we relocated to another part of the world too. 
Okay, I'm interested in you were growing up in a, a rural environment, um, small communities there in Western Inverness Shire, going on to a small rural church, um, small rural school. Can you just comment on your impressions of rurality in the first 17 years of your life? I suppose for uh, a good part of that time, it was all I knew. And so I didn't uh, have a particular uh, alternative vision of life uh, to compare it with. Uh, as I recall uh, growing up uh, when my dad was working on a farm, um, I recall the sense of freedom uh, at that stage in, uh, I guess, the, the 70s. Um, we had a scope to wander about and to meet up with friends and to go uh, for a ride on the bike that perhaps isn't quite as uh, as likely to be the case in uh, the modern world with all our concerns about safety and security and so on. So I remember it being a very pleasant uh, experience. Um, I guess that it gave me an appreciation for um, for space and for uh, the the fresh air and so on. Um, but I must say that I also have uh, enjoyed living in a city environment sometimes and uh, in a town environment. So I think I'm fairly adaptable and, uh, yeah, I, I enjoy both. And, of course, now we're we're in a small community where we're staying now. And uh, that, again, we're appreciating very much, uh, trying to uh, get the most out of the benefits and trying not to think too much about the, the limitations of any particular context. Yeah, I probably should have told the listeners, you know, to put it into context. Uh, Alistair is currently a lecturer at Edinburgh Theological Seminary. He teaches in Biblical Studies, New Testament, and also Mission Studies, and he also supervises postgraduate studies. So his work is a kind of, although he's an again minister, he's also a teacher and an academic, just to put it in, in the context. Alistair, can you share just a little bit of your Christian journey? Sure. So I grew up in a Christian family, and as you said, I was part of um, church uh, activities from an early age, going to going to church, going to Sunday school, going to all of these kind of activities. Um, so I think that as I grew into the, my teenage years, I had a pretty good grounding on um, the the kind of information of Christianity, but. What I came to realize in due course was that it was largely a head knowledge rather than a heart and will uh, engagement and commitment. And uh, so I was the sort of person who would do pretty well in a Bible quiz, um, but it wasn't rooted in my heart and it wasn't something that I could say if I was asked, are you a Christian? I wouldn't be confident to, to say, yes, I am. So I'm very thankful for that uh, Christian environment. I was I was brought up by Christian parents, and uh, the the context in which I grew up, I think, was very formative for me. Um, when I was 17, when I got my independence and was able to to drive in an old banger of a car, I it was a um, Fiat Panda, wasn't it? As I recall, well, I, it was. Uh, there was a Fiat Panda in there at one point. I remember. Um, you almost had to blow on the windscreen to get it to go up hills, uh, but it was a it was a decent car. And even before then, I had a Peugeot, um, which was a real old car, and uh, it uh, but it got me around. 
And uh, I remember uh, my mum encouraging me. We, we went to a church where it was a very small, fairly traditional church, and uh, which has changed quite dramatically in, in more recent years. Um, and uh, a church where there were only very few young people. So I remember my mum saying, uh, why don't you go to this uh, meeting of young people from uh, the Free North Church in Inverness? And so um, that was uh, that was what I did uh, with a measure of reluctance, I think, just uh, not sure if I really wanted to do this. But I went uh, into Inverness and I joined this uh, group of young people on a on a trip as it was that on that occasion. And what was so striking to me was just the warmth of their welcome, of their kindness, of uh, just a, a real sense of concern and care and love. And uh, I think that had a huge impact on me. So there wasn't really much content uh, to that evening, but there was a sense of real community. And I then went back to a Sunday uh, gathering of the, the group and at that point one of the elders in the church spoke to me and really just asked me that question that uh, I said I wasn't sure how I would answer are you a Christian and in line with what I said earlier I said well I don't know and so he said well that's something that can be changed and uh, he he fundamentally said if this is what God says in his word, if he says that if you put your trust in Jesus, then you will be saved, you will have your sins forgiven, you will be accepted into God's family and be made part of his uh, people, then his word is true. And if you believe it's true, then you must simply trust it. You must make that a personal belief, receive that gift. And I think that I was always looking for something a bit more complicated. And that sense of um, simply believing that God's promises are trustworthy was the turning point. So uh, I was encouraged by uh, my friends to tell my mum and dad that I was a Christian. And really, that's, that's where my Christian life began as being able to be sure of my location within God's people. Um, I think God was working in all sorts of ways in my life before then, but that's where it became um, a significant turning point for me. From then on, um, became very much, really, almost immediately I became, uh, we moved and I became part of the, the Smith and Culloden congregation, and I think that was also uh, a very significant aspect of my Christian development. Can you tell us a little bit about your call to ministry? When I first met you, you were, a, I suppose, an apprentice, a trainee accountant. Um, I have to say you weren't the happiest accountant I've ever met in my entire life. And it was yep. clear that maybe that wasn't to be your life's work. Um, so, I don't know, can you recall these days and tell us a little bit about how you felt called into the ministry? Sure. I wasn't a particularly outstanding uh, school student. I um, I did well enough, but not uh, outstandingly. And I wasn't really very sure what I would do uh, with my life. And uh, this opportunity arose to, to work um, as an accountant and then to do some further training. And again, I was, I was doing it and, and 
getting on okay, but I really, my heart wasn't in it. I wasn't enthralled by it, motivated by it. Um, but as I became uh, more involved in the church, I started to have a desire to learn. And that led to reading the first theological book that I can remember. I remember it was a Wellwyn commentary, and it could even have been yourself, David, that gave it to me. But I remember it was a Wellwyn commentary on Revelation called The Lamb is All the Glory. And uh, it just fascinated me, this, uh, this approach to really engaging with the biblical text and to, to thinking seriously about it. And that led to a, a growing desire to learn. I remember sitting in my office where we didn't have uh, much to do at lunchtime. I was working in a rural uh, area and I would take books in over lunchtime and be reading through them. I read some of Jim Packer the, um, the, on the Holy Spirit. And uh, I remember just this growing appetite to learn. So I think along with that, I was spending a lot of time with uh, with Christian friends, and I think of the uh, the hours that they patiently uh, gave to me uh, as I would pester them and uh, and as I would spend hours with them in conversation. I think all of that was formative in leading me to think perhaps some form of Christian service would be my calling. And uh, so at a certain point, that uh, issue arose. I, I had to make a decision. What am I going to do next? And I decided to go and study theology. And it was in the course of that that I had a, a sense of calling to ministry. Uh, initially, I thought that my calling might be to teaching, but to teaching religious studies in a school context. But in the course of my uh, studies, fairly early on, uh, I came to the conviction that God was calling me to to ministry of some kind. Well, I'm interested in, okay, you, you describe your school experience as being average. Your first work experience was average. However, when you began to study religious studies, theology, as an undergraduate, stuff started to kick in. Have you any sense of, of what that was? Is it as simple to say that you were a late developer or was it just that the stars aligned and your personal spiritual intellectual interests for the first time in your life lined up? I think that there could be a number of factors. It could be that um, there's an element of my particular form of development that was in, involved in that. And I think that's something that uh, is useful for parents to keep in mind that, that people don't always develop in the same way and at the same time. But I think there was also this sense that this really... For me and in my path that God had for me, this mattered greatly. Uh, this was something that thrilled me, that intrigued me, that fascinated me. And I think that that engagement with the material um, was so important. So I suspect that part of that was a growing sense that the Bible uh, was of supreme importance. I think another aspect of it was probably getting to know people as my teachers who modelled in one way or another uh, that uh, engagement with the text and seeing people in ministry. Uh, so I think of folks like Alistair I. McLeod, who I, I met at a very early stage in my Christian life, and seeing uh, his 
life as a human being, but also as a minister, as a, a model. And so I think that uh, in a number of ways, uh, the, the sense was this really matters. I need to give myself 100% to that. And, and of course, I recognize that for some people, that's what God calls them to be as accountants, uh, that their life is to be uh, devoted to that and to do the very best they can in that line of work or as an engineer or whatever they're called to do. But for me, it seemed that this was this was my niche and God was calling me to do the very best I could. Okay, I'm really interested in your kind of academic path in a sense in preparation for ministry because you did religious studies, theology at Edinburgh. You then did another bachelor's postgrad ETS and, and then you did graduate studies, PhD studies through Aberdeen. Uh, that is a lot of theology. Do you, do you have any <laughs> regrets in maybe not having done something else as your first degree, maybe in the general arts or in science or in business? It's a good question, and I'm not sure that I would necessarily recommend my path as um, the path to go, but I think that the way that the Lord's hand was on my life, worked out in a way that was really beneficial to me and to the way that my work has has gone. So what I would say is that, well, first of all, I had that experience of working and studying in accountancy. So there was a measure, there were about three or four uh, years when I was working in that um, mainstream work environment and study environment. And uh, I did two years uh, of accountancy studies. And I suppose that that taught me a few things, not least that I wasn't a great accountant, but I think that that was useful. And, and I regard that as a positive aspect of my experience. It led to the slightly strange situation that when I went to Edinburgh University, uh, first of all, I was uh, a quite old uh, first year in the halls of residence, but a very young first year in the divinity faculty where many people had come from uh, an established career somewhere else. So I did religious studies and that had a significant um, strand of uh, looking at the different religious traditions in the world, including a section that was taught by um, Professor Andrew Walls on uh, primal religion. And so we were studying um, Buddhism and Islam and Hinduism and all of that was quite interesting to me. And then Andrew Walls, uh, this uh, who I came to realize was a, a very uh, distinguished evangelical scholar of mission history. Um, Andrew Walls was teaching what was then called primal religions. It would probably be called indigenous religions uh, now. And uh, fundamentally, the, the kind of beliefs that you would find in African traditional religion. And I remember thinking, oh, this, is, this isn't this is very relevant to me. When am I ever going to come across people who believe this stuff? Uh, little knowing that Africa would play a part uh, in my life uh, later on. So actually, because I had to do these religious studies, because I had to do uh, philosophy, uh, philosophy of religion, I think the, the range of studies was quite wide. And, and so I'm thankful for that. The theological studies um, were also interesting because they were done from quite a different perspective in the university. 
to that which I eventually uh, would study in uh, what was then the Free Church College, now ETS. So they weren't done by and large from a confessional point of view or or even primarily from a, a theological or orthodox point of view. Sometimes they were quite distinctly um, non-orthodox or uh, quite challenging. So we would uh, study um, liberation theology or we would study um, uh, Bultmann's uh, demythologizing or whatever it might be. Stuff that I wasn't really getting uh, or going to get in um, my ministry training. And so both of these have proved very useful. I think I learned a lot more about Schleiermacher and uh, Bultmann at New College than I did at ETS. But I wouldn't have wanted that to be my fundamental ministry training. But it's been extremely helpful as I've had to think about the academic side of things as time has gone on. So, again, it wasn't my cleverness or uh, my ability to manufacture that, but I just see it as the Lord's hand in shaping uh, my experience so that it's useful for what I do now. Great. We'll talk about ministry and mission in a wee while. Let me just touch on, you know, you you left uh, ETS, you were ordained as a minister, and you worked initially as an assistant minister in the Free North with special responsibility for in Madras Street, which is down in the Mark Inch, is now morphed into Mark Inch Free Church. You worked with uh, the much-loved Ronald Mackay, the much-loved and late Ronald Mackay in, in a team ministry. Can you tell us just a few reflections about that time in Inverness? Yeah, it was, uh, again, a, a great blessing to, to be in that situation. It wasn't where we imagined. I'm not sure that... Uh, while I was in uh, theological college, I particularly imagined where I would be, but there was a, a sense of um, of the a natural circle uh, being formed because, as I said, the, the Free North Church had been significant in me coming to to know Jesus, and so here it was this church uh, inviting me to to come and serve in ministry there, and uh, I was also. Um, continuing my academic studies. I had uh, been uh, gripped by academic studies uh, during my undergraduate work, and I had come to the conclusion that I should train as far as I could go without any clear idea of exactly what that might lead to, but I should give myself to become as well-trained as I could possibly be. And when I reached the limit, that's fine. That's where I would stop in uh, trusting the Lord's goodness for that. So that time in, in Madras Street was fascinating because I was still involved with the academic side of things. I was preaching in a, an established and beautiful and grand church, sometimes uh, in the centre of Inverness. But I was also involved in this uh, ministry that was just setting out in, in certain forms um, to that area where there was there was such need, spiritual need, social need, and uh, I think that that was a, an extremely uh, challenging time. But it was also a time where I learned a lot. I think particularly to work alongside Ronnie was a huge gift. It was a, a great blessing, and it, I suspect it's shaped up a lot of what I do and how I do it. Um, I really came to value team ministry, the, the opportunity to talk with a colleague, to pray with a colleague, to rely on a colleague, to seek wisdom from a colleague, 
And Ronnie was just such a, a model of a godly but also uh, clear-thinking uh, minister. He was uh, unfailingly gracious, but he could be firm. And uh, I greatly appreciated not just what he taught me, so to speak, but what he modelled for me. Well, I mean, one of the things that I love about your ministry and I just love ministry generally is the diversity of it. You know, you've got Free North, it's what our American friends would call a big steeple church, uh, mm. traditional, um, historic, you know, city centre church. Uh, you've got urban deprived area like, like Markinch, you've worked in rural South Africa, you've worked in a town in South Africa, you did... You, you've done Livingston, you worked in New, well, Newtown, you, you were a part of Smithton, a sort of big suburban church. You're now, you know, you've been in the Black Island, Ferentosh. There's, there's no end to the amount of churches <laughs> you've been in. You're, you're now a kind of interim minister in Badena Free Church, which is in King Yusey. Um Just comment on, do you, I mean, I guess it's a no-brainer, but do you, like me, enjoy diversity? Absolutely, absolutely. The, my life and Jenny and I's life together has been one of uh, never quite knowing what the next step will be and uh, the next step often being unexpected and fascinating. And so we had, as I was working at Highland Theological College uh, in Dingwall, we had no idea that a phone call was going to come one afternoon saying, will you consider moving to South Africa? And uh, I recall uh, saying that to Jenny that evening and uh, um, we were smiling together and very suddenly uh, that idea didn't seem nearly as crazy as it had first sounded. And then we, we find ourselves back in Scotland. We find ourselves uh, in this interesting situation where I'm teaching in the city in Edinburgh, but we're living and ministering uh, at weekends in uh, in. King UC and in a rural community. I love that. And I love the the sense of connection to a whole lot of places. We've had a rather nomadic life and many moves, as you alluded to there. And uh, what that's led to is a sense of connection with many places, with many people, and a sense of uh, relationships in all sorts of different parts of the world. Also, different situations where the gospel has significance, regardless of which context it is, which cultural situation, which language, the gospel has something to say to the people in that situation. And so uh, that's what we're experiencing again in our current situation, that we see God at work, we see lives being changed. Uh, and I love that. I am thankful for the people that we've met over the years and the, the rich experience of the world that we've had. And I think that has shaped who we are as, as individuals, who our family are. Um, and uh, I am very grateful for that. Diversity is, I, I think, something, if you, if you feel that you haven't had a great deal of diversity in your experience, then seek it out. Go find it somewhere or other. Um, find people who can bring a new perspective, who can share a different way of seeing the world. Uh, I think that it's a, a great advice, Alistair. Great advice. I'm going to fast forward a little bit for the listeners. Sure. You were assistant minister at Free North, and then you went in your first academic position was teaching New Testament 
at Highland Theological College, um, which again is a great ministry up there. First of all, it was in Elgin, and then it moved to Dingwall. And then you moved on from that uh, to Dumasani Theological Institute in King Williamston, South Africa. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, what is called theological famine. You know, why is there a need for theologians in, in Africa? Everybody associates Africa <clears throat> with um, unfairly, I think, you know, whenever you think of Africa, people think immediately of famine and disasters, which I think is a very unfair caricature of a massive, diverse continent. But can you tell us a little bit about your calling to to King and to Dumasani and the place of theology in majority world situations? Thanks, David. It's a, an excellent question. And uh, I think that the idea of, of theological famine relief um, is is an interesting one and a challenging one and perhaps one that, that needs careful reflection. Uh, the Gospel Coalition has used this uh, language and I've picked it up as we were getting involved in Africa. Um, we were conscious of at least from our perception, many pastors who were serving uh, a Christian community who were trying to preach, but who had minimal physical resources. They often had uh, very, very few books. Um, they often didn't have uh, extensive uh, opportunities to use the internet. They might have a smartphone but they, um, in more recent years, but they didn't have uh, the kind of access that we have in uh, the West to these kind of resources. So there was that physical um, need, but there was also uh, a sense that in many places there was no uh, strong tradition of training or of even theological uh, orthodoxy. There were areas where there was a strong influence from prosperity teaching, which is largely a Western um, influence, but it was uh, endemic in, in uh, many of the churches in, in Africa. So... I have. I think the idea was that just as we in the Western churches are moved by, and I think appropriately so, uh, the need of people who suffer um, food famine because of uh, because of a drought or so on, so we should be concerned for people's need for that spiritual uh, teaching, that resource of solid theology, um, and we should be concerned about that. Now. As I've got to know more brothers and sisters from Africa, and as I've thought about that language from that context, first of all, as you say, I recognize that we can very much focus on the negative aspects of the continent of Africa and not pick up the great positives of the continent. So there are certain parts of uh, the continent which are ravaged by uh, natural disasters and also sometimes by political uh, oppression and uh, real mismanagement and people can be in real trouble. But there are also parts of the continent which are um, warm and which are developed and which are uh, characteristic uh, characterized by uh, a real humanity and uh, thoughtfulness and creativity. 
And more and more we see um, people coming through us. The church has, has blossomed in uh, Africa. It's, it's grown in, in vast numbers, sometimes uh, in a healthy way, sometimes not always so. But as the church has grown, so there is more and more uh, careful thinking being done by African Christians. And there's more and more um, resources coming from Africa itself. So when we were called to go to Africa, we had this uh, sense that we wanted to go and to serve the, the community there. We were, uh, it was very much the policy of the Free Church of Scotland who sent us to work in partnership with uh, local South Africans. So we were not just sent there and imposed on the church, but we were um, we were called, we were invited by the church and by the college there. And it was very much a partnership um, mentality that we were working with, uh, that we worked together to provide resources uh, that would support and encourage and build up the church there. So I think that I've become more careful uh, as I think about that language of theological famine relief. We have to be careful not to suggest that, that all that there is to say about Africa is its need. There's also the need to learn from very gifted and uh, competent African theologians. And I think that we're moving more and more in that direction. Um, but I think that there is still a need for resources and for training. And what I see more and more is that that's happening um, by people from the different African nations. I think of the work of Langham Partnership, which is encouraging both um gifted academics from uh, Africa and other parts of the, the global church to get solid training so that they can go back and be involved in theological education in their own context. And I also think of the work they do in publishing African and other global Christians so that there can be books written in context that can serve the churches in these areas. So probably as time has gone by, it's now 15 years uh, since we were first called to go to Africa. Uh, as that time has passed, I think there has been a change to some extent in the balance of how um, the church in the West and the church in the, the global South, uh, to use these terms, can, um, can encourage and support and engage with each other. Yeah, that's really interesting, Alistair. I, I love what you said there about even the concept of theological famine and language should be handled very sensitively. I mean, we're uh, broadcasting this week in a time of real racial tension across the world and you know, language is not benign. We, we have to be really careful. That's not to surrender to political correctness, but really just of thoughtfulness. Um, Absolutely. Can you just comment on the, the state of theological reflection, biblical studies, theology in Africa, Latin America, Asia, uh, majority world? Are, are you seeing a development there? Is there good stuff coming out of, of the global south? I think so. I, th I think that um, sometimes... The challenge for people in my own context in uh, Western Europe or in North America, um, some of uh, other parts of the world, maybe Australia, um, is that it, the question is how will we access that material? How will we make ourselves aware of that material? And I think that the Langham Partnership is doing just a, an outstanding job in making that kind of literature available. So I would encourage 
friends who are involved in uh, in preaching or teaching to get hold of something like the new edition, wait for a few months and get the new edition of the Africa Bible Commentary. Um, Liz Mburu, a, a gifted New Testament teacher uh, who trained in, in North America but is working in Kenya, she's um, editing the, the New Testament side of that, bringing that together. And that is a way of listening that will be available uh, through various uh, opportunities, through various bookshops and so on. It's a way of listening to African scholarship. Um, look at the Langham Partnership website and you'll find uh, scholars working in Singapore. You'll find them working in India. You'll find them working in various African countries and they're publishing but to a large extent, these things aren't finding their these works aren't finding their way onto the the reading lists of Western uh, classes. And so, one of the things that I feel I can do, uh, having had the blessing of working in Africa, is to help my uh, students and to help uh, those around me in uh, a Western context now to be aware of these uh, volumes. So, for instance. Uh, there's, uh, I've been discussing with my students recently, issues of spiritual warfare, which of course are um, sometimes much more pressing in their uh, their thinking. The, the issues press much more on the thinking of Christians in an African context than they do typically in a, a modern Western context. And so I've been trying to draw attention to um, various books that have been written by African scholars, one by uh, a Ghanaian called uh, Daniel Darko. Um, uh, there's another uh, another volume recently has come from a scholar from Africa who's working in Toronto. And uh, yeah, there's there's just a range of materials that are available if only people will will notice them. Great. I mean, your your current position at ETS, uh, it seems to me to be perfect for your academic interests and your skill sets. You are teaching New Testament and also mission studies. Can you tell us a little, I mean, I'm thinking of folk like Andrew Wells and Leslie Newbegin, um, you know, towering giants in, in missiology. How do you draw the connection and academic terms between biblical studies and missiology. I think Andrew Walls was a historian. Do most mm. missiologists come with a theology background or a biblical studies background? I think it varies somewhat, but I am greatly encouraged that actually a good number of uh, folks who are now associated with uh, mission studies writing on mission theology and uh, various aspects have come from a background of careful work with biblical texts. Um, I think of Chris Wright, perhaps the mm -hmm. most uh, notable uh, mission writer in evangelical circles and uh, more widely uh, today. Chris started his career focusing on Old Testament studies and, and he continues to write excellent Old Testament studies, uh, biblical scholarship. But of course, also when he finished his doctoral work, did his doctoral work at Cambridge, but he then went to teach in India, uh, Pune uh, in India, I think. And he um, was doing his biblical studies in the context of a, a situation where it was, it was very different from his uh, Cambridge days. 
And so you see that combination of biblical studies and the global church coming together. Similarly, David Wenham, an excellent New Testament scholar, more focused on New Testament is writing, but again, spent some time in India. Um, someone like Eckhart Schnabel, uh, an excellent New Testament uh, scholar based in the US, but served uh, in East Asia. And so actually there's been a strong tradition of uh, folks coming from a biblical studies training involved in the global church and then integrating that, uh, that combination of factors together to produce volumes that are really helpful for mission studies. Alistair, time is going on. I cannot believe the time is flying. We we try and keep <laughs> these podcasts around forty minutes. <clears throat> I think we we've gone over. So let's uh, let's come into line. That's been a sure. You know, each sentence you've come out with, I've wanted to unpack. There's a couple of hours <laughs> here, but we wouldn't inflict my voice on the listeners. Um, just a couple of things to uh, complete our our journey with you love books and again talk about diversity whether it's French you know crime uh, uh, fiction or weighty Dutch theology you you read most things what are you reading just now well uh, indeed I love books and, and I Again, I um, am amazed at the way in which God has given me a, a deep love for reading, and, and I'm very grateful for that. I try and read a variety of things. I try not to, to get too buried into one territory, so I've got a variety of things on the go. Um, reading a, a book by Lizamburu, who I've mentioned, called African Hermeneutics, uh, published by Hippo Books lovely name uh, associated with Augustine. I try and read sometimes books that come from a very different perspective to my own so that I'm uh, stretching my thinking. So I've been reading my way through uh, Doug Campbell's Pauline Dogmatics, which I knew before I started I wasn't going to agree with, but mm -hmm. it's a bit like going to the gym. The, the stretching experience is very valuable. I've been reading, just about finished, uh, a dogmatics, a uh, Christian teaching, a uh, do Christian dogmatics band by Van der Koy and Van den Brink in English. Um, and uh, I've also been just starting to read a New Testament theology by Craig Blomberg. Craig Blomberg uh, was uh, a young scholar when I started uh, to study in 1988. And uh, I found his book, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, to be just absolutely life-saving in a, a rather critical theological context uh, when I started in New College. And uh, over the years, I've greatly appreciated Craig Blomberg's work. So uh, this is a, a New Testament theology, and I'm just getting into that. Hope to work with my students on that uh, in the coming year. So uh, on top of that, I've been listening, uh, I enjoy listening to books, and I've been listening to a recent book on the Puritans, and also a biography, a huge biography of Frederick Douglass. Uh, yeah. I think that, the distinguished that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, so I mean, it's a great book. 
really yeah, interesting. There's, an, there's another conversation on Frederick Douglass to be had. Uh, Indeed. So of, of course, the free church were very much involved with that just after yep. the disruption and the send back the money campaign. Yeah, indeed. Um, which is, is fascinating. Alistair, uh, I'm now going to leave you, and I'm going to leave you not in King Yusei, but I'm going to dump you on a desert island. <laughs> and, um, we're going to have a barbecue, and then I'm going to sail off over the horizon. You have your Bible, of course, uh, okay. Hebrew and Greek, obviously. Um, what would be the one book, I'm going to be really cruel, what would be the one book that you would want alongside of your Bible in the original text? Well, that it is a, it's a really tough one. And uh, so there are all sorts of qualifications I might put on that. I think that if I have my Bible, that I would choose the Lord of the Rings. Uh, and I'm assuming that that's not treated as three separate parts. Um, I I think that that's a book that has brought me huge joy, but it's also plumbing uh, depths of biblical teaching in a narrative fictional form. And I find that I am captivated by the humor, but also by the pathos of it. And I often think about Tolkien's grasp of that which seems most attractive being that which is most detrimental. Um, This kind of uh, image of evil having a beautiful uh, outward uh, expression. And uh, I think that that would give me endless hours of enjoyment and uh, thoughtful reflection. Wow. Okay. I think I've often thought of this. I would probably go for War and Peace um, because it's lengthy, um, <laughs> it's great language, mm. and again, it just raises lots and lots of issues. And because it's lengthy and full of Russian names, it's so complex, I would probably have to read it two or three times to, to get it. So, <laughs> indeed, you'd be, in, yeah. you'd be in one island with the uh, Lord of the Rings, and I'd be in. With Tolstoy barefooted in the other island. Uh, <laughs> Indeed, after a few years, I might be able to speak Elvish as well. <laughs> be fluent. You'll probably translate the New Testament into Elvish. That would be quite interesting. <laughs> um, Alistair, thank you so much for what has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, I think we will talk again. And thank you. It's been a pleasure. Next few months, and we wish you every blessing in Kinyusi and in your work in ETS.